compared to even five years ago, it's totally different of wherever you can acquire a skill, it doesn't matter as long as you have the skill. I think there's still a bias of like, did you go to college or not? Because uh, I'm not going to advocate that like everyone should go to college because it's not for everyone. But there is something to be said that you learn at college, especially if you take courses outside of, you know, one major where you learn an aspect of critical thinking. Welcome to the Data Bytes podcast, Erin. I am so happy to be having this conversation with you because I know we met in person a little over a year ago and had chatted about coming on the pod and we're finally making it happen. So thank you for taking the time to come and speak with me today. But today I want to dive into your background because you have a really interesting journey in working in data and AI for over 10 years. Tell us a little bit on how you got started in the field. Yeah, so I will go way, way back. Um, I remember when I was trying to pick a major for college, which is, I think, a common feeling among many people. And I come from a really, really medical background family, um, a lot with doctors, that whole thing. So there's a lot of pressure to, to go into that. So I didn't want to do that, though. I wanted to be different. Um, and I always really liked psychology. So there was the caveat of, okay, you can major in psychology, but take all these other things so that when you stop being crazy and decide to go to medical school... <laughs> You, you'll have all the prerequisites. So um, I ended up with a minor in biochemistry, um, which does serve me well because it gives me an appreciation of some of that end of the sciences. Um, and with that, I always thought, all right, I'm going to go into neuropsychology. Um, I was at a research conference my senior year presenting some of my own research and there's a lot of graduate school representatives. I met uh, IO psychologists, which is industrial organizational psychology, which is a mouthful, which is why we just say IO. <laughs> and we got to chatting and he said, I think you would make a phenomenal IO psychologist. And I said, I have never taken an IO class. I have no interest in that. Like, sell me on it. Try. <laughs> um and it kind of, it kind of worked. So I said, he's like, there's no harm in applying to some IO programs. So I did. I, I got into a really good one at Minnesota State uh, for a master's. And that is where I went. Um, I had an okay experience. Uh, if I could do it again, I probably wouldn't have gone to that program, if I'm being honest. But it gave me a a solidification that I was really good at statistics because a cornerstone of psychology is you have to take a lot of statistics. Um, and at the graduate level, you really get into it. And I became the person in my cohort that was the stats person where people were having trouble on an assignment or a project. They would ask me <laughs> for help. And even though a lot of the other sides of IO psych more around organizational theory and motivation and groups and teams interested me more, I sort of got pigeonholed into, you're the person in the back room doing the data. And I really embraced that for like five years after graduate school, where I went into uh, compensation consulting, and then marketing analytics, 
picked up some BI tools along the way, Tableau, learned Alteryx. Um, I did some really interesting data things around customer experience. And then I realized, wow, I have strayed so far. Uh, I don't really talk to people that much anymore. And that's really what I want to do. So I made a switch, sort of, like a tangent, where I went to be a solutions engineer, which is more selling a product and demonstrating it and talking about the value and utilizing a lot of psychology because it's about you know, learning and trying to tease out what someone's pains are and whether or not your product is a fit, learning how to handle objections um, is just as much an art as it is a science. And that's kind of the space I'm still in now. Yeah, psychology is one of those degrees, I think, where people originally are like, what are you going to do with it? It's a useless degree, right? But also can be one of the most applicable degrees, particularly to, I think, people forget how much math and statistics there are in psychology, and more importantly, how much you really do science and have to really understand the scientific method. I know for me, I also got cornered as like the data person and the statistics girl. I was the TA in the statistics class and was what allowed me then to switch and go get my master's in data science. So very similar story. And I'm very grateful for that portion, but also how much now in my work, I rely on the things that I learned in psychology, because even though we're working with technology, it always reflects and is about people in some regard. And so psychology to me is like one of the most applicable degrees, but on the surface level, maybe one of the most worthless degrees, right? Because there's nothing that people are like, okay, you know, if you want to be a therapist, you still have to go get your master's, et cetera. I didn't want that. I was just interested in the subject. Um, and it sounds like, you know, something that you were as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you use psychology in your work today? I know one of the things you mentioned was the Hawthorne effect and how you're seeing that come up in job searching. What is the Hawthorne effect and what are you, what patterns are you seeing now today with it? Yeah. So the Hawthorne effect is nothing new. If you look up social psychology articles from like the 1970s, it's, there's a lot of that dating way back. And basically it's that people behave differently when they know they're being observed. And it's been proven in research countless times, again, since the 70s. So there was a lot of push about that, about, you know, people are going to behave differently. And I say different because broadly that might mean better for some people, but for other people that might mean worse. And I think that's what we're seeing in the discourse around back to office pushes. Some people are saying, yes, I work so much better when I'm in the office You know, there's other people around that, you know, can come talk to me whenever. Whereas when I'm at home, you know, I don't have that. Then there's the opposite side of people say, well, I don't want, I don't want people watching me all the time and interrupting me. And so it's, it's sort of coming full circle all the way back to something we've already hashed out where it's like, yes, people behave differently in office and they, we've given people the chance to realize, wow, maybe I work better not in an office. And I don't, I don't want to go back to that. Don't make me go back to that. 
Um, so that's sort of what I'm seeing now. And um, similarly, too, I think it applies to social media. Um, I'm sure, I'm not sure, but there might be research on this of like, the fact that people behave so much differently on social media because they know people are going to read it. That's kind of the point. So how do people act on social media versus in, in real life? And how do you know that someone you're hiring is going to be who they are on social media, like LinkedIn, versus when you actually hire them? Yeah, it's a very interesting concept because it doesn't necessarily always predict how people will act, but we know that being watched will make you behave differently, right? So for some people that, as you mentioned with the back to work, for some people that's a positive, right? They like people around because they know, hey, I'm going to work my best. When I have other people around me, I'm more engaged, I'm more focused, I'm able to come out with my best ideas, right? They need those people watching them to be able to do that role and job best. Then there's others who are like, get that away from me. It creeps me out. I hate people watching me. I hate people around me. Like I need my focus time and I need to be able to not have people around. And so I think that's just important for all of us to kind of monitor as a way to self-reflect on ourselves, like you said, right? Which is, it doesn't mean it's good or bad. We just know it's going to be differently. Who are you? Are you somebody who likes to have people around or are you somebody who doesn't? And how does that change your behavior? And also, how does it change your behavior, as you mentioned, to showing up online, which I think is really important. You know, there's some people I I wish they had a little bit more of the effect because you're like, you you shared that comment and that mean remark online. Like, you know, other people are going to see that. Is that who you really are, right? So you're like, you maybe should be more aware that other people are watching. But I think it's such a great core principle, and again, back how psychology is so interwoven into everything we do, particularly in the workplace as well, and how it can help us understand ourselves, but also understand those that we work with too. So getting into the data, you have worked a lot with people processes behind data teams, and I feel like this is such a good intersect between your work in IO psychology, but also with your work in the technology space. We all know the the trifecta, right? Everything is always about people process technology. And typically the technology is the least important. It's the people in the process that will make or break your project. How have you seen data teams fail because of bad people culture or process and what are the typical kind of pain points for those organizations? So one thing that I've seen that's more applicable to, I think, startups is, um, especially in the data space, you'll see startups that are maybe someone with a software engineering background, a data engineering background, and they might have a co-founder and they start a company and then they hire bunch of other engineers and then they run it like an engineering team where they have daily stand-ups and that kind of check-in cadence and everything is you know maybe not everything but people document things and it's very everything's very observable and out in the open and your days are very segmented and everything is organized whereas as a startup grows 
you might have to hire your first salesperson or your first marketing person. And the way that that type of person where it's more creative and interactive and fluid, I've seen startups try and basically scrum everything to death where it's like everyone still has to be on daily standups and you need to tell me exactly what you're going to accomplish today and what you did yesterday and I want your detailed plan and in jobs that have a lot more fluidity that can be very suffocating where you might think it may make someone more productive but it's presumptive to assume everyone works like a data engineer or everyone should work like a data engineer. Yeah, I completely understand that. And it was definitely a mistake that I made when I first led my own organization because I was very used to how technology teams were run and running them and very much in the like scrum mentality, right? Which is you have to document everything. We need updates on what's going on. And it does not work that way for sales at all. A little bit for marketing because of like digital marketing, you can plan out things a little bit better. But particularly on the sales side, it took me about a year, maybe a year and a half of frustration (laughs) working with our sales individuals because I didn't understand the process of how it worked. The other side of things is my Myers-Briggs is completely different. So I'm an ENTJ with a very strong J. Typical salespeople are not strong on the J, right? Just kind of generally speaking. And so there's also this understanding of differences of how people work. And in the beginning for me, it was extremely frustrating. There was a lot of butting heads. And finally, it just had to go, it doesn't matter how you do your process, but what are the results? And so that was how we found the common ground was like, hey, you do what you think is best because that's why we hired you and that's your area. If the results aren't there, okay, then we'll have a conversation, but I can't force my way of doing things on you. And I think that's a typical problem that happens within these these teams. Have you noticed similar things or what have you found as ways to work as you grow as a startup and as a data team? Um, I think that like you kind of mentioned and I wanted to kind of hammer home is that in sales, it's not predictable. And that's part of why they have to do their job how they do it is because you can have all of these goals and you can set up all of your integrations with Salesforce or HubSpot and certain emailing and outreach messaging. You can set up all of these things that are very organized, but what you're dealing with is messy and unpredictable. You don't know what's going to come back and you constantly just have to adapt and adjust. Um, And it's almost like is if you were trying to code something and the rules of the code changed every time. So like you would write a Python script and then suddenly, oh, the period, we don't use parentheses for this function anymore. Like when did that change? (laughs) Like, so every time you go to do it, there's a new error and you're like, when did the rules change? And that's kind of how sales is where it's always changing. And I think, There is one question that people could ask to alleviate all these problems is, what do you need? What do you need to do your job the best? And people instead just make the assumption that I know what you need to do because I'm the leader, I'm the founder, I'm the whatever. But like, what do you need to do your job the best? 
that you can do it? I think that's such a great question, right? Again, back to that more listening instead of speaking can be so helpful in situations like these. You mentioned currently you're on the job market right now, and I'm really excited to talk to you because I think having kind of firsthand insight into what are hiring managers looking for, what are they not looking for, kind of what are their reactions to different boot camps, colleges, on the job experience. You know, it does seem to be a difficult job market right now at this time, given the amount of layoffs that are happening. And I know organizations that I talk to, they're not laying off people, they're on a hiring freeze. So what have you seen in terms of what hiring managers who are actually hiring at this time are looking for and their responses to experience and and different educational variations? The ball is definitely in the hiring manager's courts in that they're having unprecedented amount of applicants for jobs. So a lot of times you'll see on a resume some disclaimer that You know, women are less likely to apply to jobs if they don't meet all the criteria. So if you think you meet some, you should apply. But in my opinion right now, unless you meet every criteria, don't bother applying because they're going to get so many applicants that they think they can look for that one person that checks every box. And then it even goes further than that, where I can think of things I've applied to where I, I check everything. I get further in the interview process and then they they change the game. They decide later on of like, well, now that we've interviewed people, I think we actually could also do with this and this and this. And it's sort of like a build a bear of like they didn't set it beforehand. And that's a terrible practice of don't change the job description when you're already through, you know, over a month into interviewing people. Um But again, that's kind of a sign that it's a hiring manager's market and they're trying to get the unicorn perfect person for a role instead of giving someone a chance and asking questions to assess uh, learning and growth mindsets, which some people definitely have and some people definitely don't have and are maybe more like, I have all these skills, sure, I'll learn more, but there's ways to kind of ask someone to like assess their their hunger for wanting to really do something. And I, I am talking about that and I am sort of promoting my own self because I fall in that camp of like, I don't know 20 coding languages, but whatever the things I need to know for to do this job the best I can, like I won't run, I'll sprint. Like, let me let me do it. I'm more than happy to learn the harder coding skills. But what I can bring to you is fully baked softer skills that are basically less automatable skills that I can bring to the table, which I think is even more valuable with AI of the human skills that people possess that you can't automate away. Yeah, I think the other difficult with hard skills and being stagnant on hard skills is they also change very rapidly too, right? So again, you know, what you really do want to hire for are those people who have that curiosity and that growth mindset and really that like owner's attitude of always looking at things and saying like, how can I make this better? Or how can we do this differently? 
And I don't know why so many individuals fall into the trap of, no, we need these hard skills and we're going to test on that. I think that is definitely a starting point. But at the end of the day, you want those people who are going to grow with you because skills, as just as rightfully as you mentioned with AI, get outdated so fast and change so fast. I think I read that your skills are for sure fully outdated every five years and about like 50% every two to three years, right? So if you're just focusing on those hard skills, you may not need that person in two to three years. And part of me wonders, is is that a reason why we're seeing all of the layoffs? I think there's a lot of factors that go involved in this. But with that being said, how are you seeing individuals, hiring managers, kind of respond to what's important? You mentioned the hard skills and knowing, you know, lots of different languages. Are they valuing education like boot camps or MOOCs, college degrees? What's kind of top priority and at least even getting through that door that you're seeing? I think that, I mean, compared to even five years ago, it's totally different of people, wherever you can acquire a skill, it doesn't matter as long as you have the skill. Um, I think there's still a bias of like, did you go to college or not? Because uh, I'm not going to advocate that like everyone should go to college because it's not for everyone. But there is something to be said that you learn at college, especially if you take courses outside of, you know, one major where you learn an aspect of critical thinking. And it's more focused on learning how to think critically and express your thoughts and explore other ideas that is harder to get in just, I just took a one-off course to learn how to code in Python or something like that. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I was hopeful a few years ago, I saw a few organizations like IBM and Accenture, I know they have particular programs where if you didn't go to college, you'll get into like apprenticeship program and have talked about how they're going to hire individuals. At the same time, we've seen things, you know, with boot camps and MOOCs and all that come out and lots of influencers like, here's how to get, you know, a job in tech making six figure plus without a college degree kind of thing, right? And some people do it, right? I'm not saying that it isn't doable, but the majority are still looking for that college degree. I would say it, I do think that not having that makes it difficult. Um, however, at the same time, we're also seeing so many people coming out with a college degree and not getting hired either. So part of me is just wondering what is going on in the job market today. And the fact of like, Companies are saying you don't need a college degree, but we all know that in reality is true. Yet individuals who just have a college degree aren't enough. So, I mean, it's the whole thing. Hey, you got to have a college degree. You got to have years of experience and you got to know X amount of coding language and have the hard skills and soft skills. Is that really where we're at in the job market today? I would say all of that plus... Were you referenced by someone? I mean, I would say even that doesn't matter so much anymore because I've had people refer me, you know, internal referrals for jobs that go nowhere. Not just one, like several. Because a lot of people talk about it on LinkedIn of like, here's how to make the best resume and have the best chances of being interviewed. And then 
people read it and people listen. And if everyone's doing that, it's just an even playing field again, where we all have to kind of figure out what's going to make us stand out. If it's not a particular college, if it's not a particular skill set, if it's not a good cover letter or resume, like what, what is it? And it feels more like a lottery, more like a gamble. I certainly haven't cracked it beyond all of those best practices. And I know I'm not alone. Yeah, I, you know, I do think personal references help. I I also think it's a little bit of persistence and, you know, going after what resonates fully with you. I also think that there's a lot of reason why individuals are kind of becoming, more individuals are becoming self-employed because they're like, hey, I did all these things, right? And there wasn't a fit for me in the job market. So I'm going to take that as my kind of signal from the universe per se, that maybe I need to create my own space. And so that's something that I'm seeing a lot more individuals do as well, which is like, hey, I know I have these skills, right? I know I can do these things. So instead of maybe doing it for another company, like maybe this is my time and my opportunity to be self-employed and create that own space, whether it's doing projects, freelance work, or starting to pull in some of those marketing skills and consulting, whatever that may be. So, you know, that's always kind of my approach for job seekers, which is like, don't ever let yourself go or throw your throw out your identity and who you are to try and fit in or stand out or become something else. Like if, if you're not finding that place where you fit, it may be a signal too to, to start your own thing. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of respect for not just obviously you, but other content creators and influential people in the space who have learned to read the room. So One person that stands out is the Seattle data guy, where if you look at his content, he always writes about, you know, how to break into data engineering. He's written like that for some time now. But if you look, his content has shifted to like how to start a data consultancy and how to start consulting on analytics, because there has been a shift, like you've said, to, well, if I can't get anything, I got to do something. So how do I do this myself? Yep. And I, I think one of the things that's important to recognize is the field is very different than it was 10 years ago. So for me, a lot of times I don't enjoy giving people advice on how to break into it because my experience is very different. I have a lot of experience versus somebody new coming in in 2024. I entered the field in 2014, right? So 10 years is very different. And the reference I always use is when I started and looked for a master's degree, there were five programs. So like my choices were easy because it's like, here's the five, which one do you want? I could compare all programs, right? Like that's not even something that you can do today. The other side of things is I remembered particularly on Coursera, there were two data science courses. There was Andrew Ng's just one class on machine learning and a John Hopkins specialization that was a four class series. And that was it right? Data camp, I think was just slowly getting started. I remember thinking like, oh, I could get data camp access. Like that would be so cool. Like they seem like they have this whole thing put together, but that was all that existed. So 
I think it's important also just to recognize like the job market has changed in this space. Yes, there is demand for these roles. Yes, this is what will be growing. But at the same time, the amount of education that exists in the space, the, the amount of people that know about it now is such larger that the competition is much heavier. So that's why I don't really feel very good at giving advice to people because I'm like, what I entered in was such a different world and such a different environment than what individuals who are entering into the space are experiencing today. It It is tricky because I read all of the reports on the growing jobs and it's all within the data and AI space. But if you talk to anyone in the space, it will talk about how hard it is to get these jobs. And so, you know, on the one hand, I like to say very positive about like, hey, there is opportunity. But on the other hand, it's like, hey, we also need to talk about that it is really hard, right? It isn't a magic formula of take the classes, build the portfolio, network, apply, get referrals, and you're good to go, right? It is a long-term game and a persistence game. I don't know if there's anything that you want to add and to those observations. I want to quash this as much as I, I can. Uh, I'll start with a caveat that in a more normal market, I would not disagree with this. The idea of if you want to advance your career more quickly, and if you want to boost your salary more quickly, you should hop jobs. Look for something else. Like Growth will happen faster with the job change versus staying internal. And I think that's true. However, I think that if you are happy in your job and the only reason why you would want to switch jobs is just for more money or a, a newer title, right now you should stay put. I, I think everything is too volatile that, you know, even if you do look, you're contributing to the, you know, sometimes thousands of applicants for for one position and maybe it will, it will work, but I think there's been a surgence of, you know, advocating for job hopping, which like I said, normally I have no problem with it, but right now feels like maybe not the best time. Yeah. I think that's good advice. And, you know, it's always good to evaluate too, like what is most important to you. There have been times in my career that I, went after and switched jobs because I was underpaid and I felt like I needed a higher salary. At the same time, there have been times I've taken less pay because for me, it was important, the work that I was doing and the team that I was working on. And so again, everything is such a personal decision and evaluating where you're at in your life. I, I think it's again, why I'm always very cautious to give people advice because I'm like, I do not know your whole scenario, right? Like maybe you have crazy student loans and where you live is super expensive and you need a higher income to be able to survive, right? Like in that instance, yeah, go for it, do it, right? If you don't, like, okay, let's evaluate what's important to you at this time in your life. Is it doing fulfilling work? Is it making sure that you have a good culture? I would love for all individuals to be able to have the magic three, right? Doing work you love in an environment that's nourishing and getting paid and rewarded the amount that you feel is valuable. And so for me, that's my kind of dream for everyone. But I know at times we get two of the three or one of the three. And so it's 
a constant iteration. Um, it reminds me, I, I'm on threads quite a bit and uh, I posted something simple. I just said, I want all of us to just get jobs and be happy. And like so many people liked and engaged with that. And it was just so simple. And someone even pointed out like, that's a funny joke. It feels impossible because sometimes people even with jobs are not happy. That's just, it's always something. There's always going to be something. I think that's applicable to everyone's life. (laughs) I think that's one of the most broadly applicable things that I'm okay advising on is like, hey, there will always be something. You can always find something wrong, whether you're employed, unemployed, like there's always something. There will always be something if we decide to observe that, right? I think there's also the other idea that, you know, we don't have to have a job to be happy as well. And that's something that I'm really interested in exploring further. Particularly, I think that not in five years or, you know, possibly 10, 15, AI will be able to do a lot of the work. And so what happens to humans as our identity is so deeply wrapped up in our job, right? We don't even know how to introduce ourselves without having a job title, right? Or how to talk to individuals without a job title, which is, you know, I I meet you, I say, hi, this is my name, what do you do? That's the first question that always comes out of our mouth. So what happens is when we don't work, we've lost a big portion of our identity. And I think that's what one of the reasons why it makes it so difficult in the job searching process is in our society, we wrap up our worthiness with our productivity and our title. And I hope to see that shift over the years. And I think it's something that we all really need to start thinking about is who are you without your job title, right? Can you describe yourself without telling me what you do? And that was an exercise I did with myself recently. And I really enjoyed it. Like once I went through that process, I'm like, I even like myself better without talking about my job. Like, For me, when I don't talk about my job title, I'm like, I'm a creative person and I am somebody who loves interesting conversation. And when you go through that process, you start to just realize that, oh my goodness, there's so much more to me than my job title. I I love that. I'm really glad that you got to do that. I um, was thinking about like, what would that exercise be like for me and... You know, I I would try and keep it light because I have a, I'm not going to call it, well, some of it's dark, but I have a not so happy history um, with various things in my life. Um, I've had a stroke, so that's always fun to talk about. Um, I've had surgery for endometriosis twice, with the last time being this last October, and that's a really just painful disease to deal with daily. Um, you know, miscarriage, like just things go back and I have a lot of negative things to talk on, but in a way it's shaped who I am because I've always tried to find gratitude in something. It's back to that mindset of like, it's always something. So once you accept it's always something, like there is always going to be something. Now what's, what's good? What can I be grateful for? I have a shelter. I have a really cute dog. 
I have a husband who loves me. Like I have family who loves me. And that's kind of what keeps me going is trying to like, who am I without my job? I'm someone who wants other people to experience what I've experienced of going through hardships and finding the good things anyway. Yeah, I love that. I am such a fan of gratitude practices because we all have some type of trial or negativity in our life, right? Whether they're health or emotional or personal or even just baggage and trauma that we're still dealing with and carrying. And for me, I started a gratitude practice last year because one of the things that I noticed in myself as well was being a founder, you look for ways to make things better, but in that same regard, it can also cause you to have a negative view of the world because you're always wanting more of like, okay, how can we make this better? How can we make this better? But you never take the time to appreciate what have you done and what is good. And so I realized I'm like, I need to start a gratitude practice just to help shift my mindset to see the good, right? No matter how bad it gets or what problem you're going through, what can I put my focus on that is good? Because I love the saying that when you focus on the good, the good grows, right? And just as you mentioned, like, I wish everybody to have a job and be happy. Like, let's focus on that and let's help that grow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a lot of negativity online. I have a lot of complaints and thoughts on it, but even though if I'm just one person, I have some reach and if I can spread some positivity to someone somewhere and make their day a little better, it's worth it. Because I know that for me, someone who had that impact for me when I was at low point is Serena Wang. Um, I've followed her for years and I actually got to meet her in person recently and that was a really special moment for me just to like say thank you like I don't even think she knows the depths of how much that like her happy little posts about her life and her career kind of brought me out of some darkness and I think you know it doesn't have to be some substantial groundbreaking article about AI to make someone's day better. And there's still so much value in making someone's day better, even if you're not teaching them something. Yes. I think that is such a great reminder for all of us that no matter where we are, when we still have reach, we still have influence and we also have the opportunity to be kind and make somebody's day better. And what we need to hear is typically what we need to teach and say, right? So anytime I'm writing posts or doing things, I'm usually, if I'm like giving advice, it's usually advice to myself. Right? I'm like, okay, well, at least I can concrete this idea and this thought better. So I think that's such a brilliant reminder and such a great way to go into the year and in the job search process. Well, it may be a dark time, is one to stay hopeful and spread some kindness so that we can make those meaningful connections. That reminds me talking about like your posts or sometimes advice to yourself. And there's a saying in graduate school in psychology that research is me search. <laughs> so whatever someone's research topic is, it's centered around something within themselves. And I think that goes for people LinkedIn posting too. It's like they're speaking to some version of themselves, especially if it's not, you know, pointed content for 
a company or something. Um, and that's definitely the case for me. Although mine feels much more scattered where I, I, uh, I am probably a nightmare for someone like you because you're, you seem very organized and I don't schedule my posts. I, I, I write my posts and post them the minute I have them and I don't edit it and I just send it. I, I wish I could do that. No, mine all get scheduled typically on Sunday. So, um, because I notice, I'm like, I can't handle the interruptions in my day, but I do write every idea. I have a notepad that when an idea comes, I write it down. And then on Sunday, I'm like, what ideas did I have? Okay, time to get these all out. So again, back to there are many ways of doing things and do what works for you. So this has been a great conversation. Oh, I do want to loop this. I, I want to go full circle back to talking about teams and how people work together of like, I will have a really good idea in the middle of nothing. Like the other day, my husband and I were watching something on TV and I was like, be right back. I need, I just had a thought. I need to go post this on LinkedIn right now. Like <laughs> just so random. And I work in like spurts of energy like that. And I think figuring out like what cadence your fellow teammates work at is helpful. Not just, you know, your boss to let them know, but like your teammates too. And not find that out months into a job. Find that out right away. So people know expectations of like how you work as a person. I agree. I think the more we can know ourselves and share who we are with others and get to know others the more we're all a little bit more understanding. And I think we could all use a little bit more understanding in 2024. So, well, Erin, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And again, I'll take what you said and write it back right at you, which is I hope that you find the job you want and the happiness that you want this year. And may that be kind of our wish for everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And to all our listeners, remember to stay curious and keep learning. And we'll catch you next time on the Data Bytes podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.